Revelation, the Fifth Gospel by Elizabeth Vieira Talbot Read by Elizabeth Vieira Talbot Copyright 2014 by Pacific Press Publishing Association Dedication I dedicate this book to all who have devoted their lives to and have been even persecuted for the proclamation of the gospel of our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. Your reward is great in the heavenly realms because you have lifted up the Lamb who was slain and made our redemption possible. And as always, I give all honor and glory to my Redeemer for justifying me by His blood, for I have no claim for heaven except my unworthiness and His sufficiency. Contents Chapter 1, The Unveiling of Jesus, Revelation Chapter 2, The Lamb is the Alpha and the Omega, Assurance Chapter 3, The Lamb is the Lion, Redemption Chapter 4, The Lamb is the Shepherd, Provision Chapter 5, The Lamb is the Victor, Celebration Chapter 6, The Lamb is the Bridegroom, Faithfulness Chapter 7, The Lamb is the Beginning and the End Restoration. Chapter 1. The Unveiling of Jesus. Revelation. I can still remember the peculiar sensation, composed of a mixture of suspense and satisfaction, that I felt one more time while sitting in the church pew, listening as my father told the story in his sermon. I had heard the story before, but for some reason it still gripped me. Maybe this happened to me because I knew the ending, or perhaps it was because I could identify with the main character in the story. I knew what was coming, and yet I savored every word the way only a child can, as if I were hearing it for the very first time. The story was about a boy who loved the main hero of a series of books. He had all the books about this valiant and beloved hero and was never disappointed. He admired this heroic star for his strength, his integrity, and his ability to save those in trouble. The mighty hero was always the victor, who stood for justice and had the power to bring it about. The boy intensely absorbed every book and relished every page. But one day it all changed. A new book was published that was very different. This time his hero was beaten suffering and constantly lost. It seemed like he was always down and could never get up. What was happening? Having barely started the book, the boy couldn't take it anymore and holding his breath went straight to the last chapter. He just couldn't wait. Something was terribly wrong. His hero was supposed to be victorious, yet the villain was constantly winning. With trembling hands, he turned to the last page of the book and read the last sentences. And there, in the final words of the book, he discovered something that gave him exceedingly great joy. It turned out that in the end, following the many seeming defeats, his hero was the victor after all, and the villain was vanquished. The villain was not strong enough, and his hero was the undisputable winner. Now that he knew the ending, he was at peace and went back to the place he had left off and continued reading the book, this time having in his possession the new information. Whenever the villain seemed to be winning, the boy would say aloud, 
if he knew what I know, if he just knew what I know. The book of Revelation is the last chapter in the story of redemption. It is the last sentence, God's final word in Scripture on salvation's history. This book is the unveiling of Jesus from a cosmic perspective. Just as the last chapter of the hero book brought peace and joy to the anxious little boy, God revealed to us the final chapter of the story of this world so that we won't be afraid. This last book of the Bible can be summarized in two words. Jesus wins. I like to visualize an impressive angelic orchestra and a massive heavenly choir in a flamboyant worship scene followed by a long and super loud drum roll with the final universal announcement, ta-da, Jesus wins. The unveiling, Jesus wins. In the book of Revelation, the master's eternal hand removes the veil to reveal a beautiful masterpiece that exceeds all of our expectations and surpasses our wildest imagination. Everyone who beholds this reality unveiled experiences an indescribable sense of amazement. Earthly and heavenly beings bow in awe as they get a glimpse of God's love for His fallen children and the price that He paid for their redemption. The last book of the Bible is the revelation of Christ as the ultimate Redeemer, victorious against the villain in the great controversy between good and evil. The book is introduced as the unveiling of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bond servants, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bond servant, John. Revelation 1.1. Emphasis added. In this book, the villain is finally exposed and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Revelation 12, 9. We know exactly who the villain is, and he's about to be no more. But as important as it is to ponder the eradication of evil, <laughs> the real focus is on the universal hero, the victor, the lamb, who made redemption possible. This revelation... Apocalypsis, which means unveiling or disclosure, of Jesus is the final word of the Bible. It is written in apocalyptic style, a narrative genre that utilizes visualizations and symbols to convey the history of the plan of salvation from a cosmic perspective. It relates things from the past, the present, and the future. See Revelation 1.19. This literary genre common during the time when the New Testament was written, utilizes many visions and symbols to convey the history of the world. Among many interesting patterns, it lists seven churches and seven seals, seven trumpets and seven plagues, as well as seven beatitudes. In many ways, this book is a summary of the whole Bible. In its English version, it contains a little more than 400 verses, but it has more than 500 allusions to the Old Testament. The author uses the main themes of salvation's history, such as the plagues, the exodus, the exile, and Babylon, etc., to demonstrate and announce the ultimate victory of our Redeemer over evil. Two of the most important characteristics of the book of Revelation, and in fact of all apocalyptic literature, are the eschatological and dualistic nature of its narratives. 
The word eschatology is based on the Greek word eschatos, which means last, and focuses on the final intervention of God, the last days, the last chapter of the story. It narrates all of human history and the plan of redemption until the very end with the recreation of the new earth. It is extremely important that Jesus says, I am the first and the last eschatos, Revelation 1.17. The appropriate study of the last day events focuses on Jesus, who is the first and the last, and therefore never produces fear. This is why Jesus' revelation of himself is preceded by, do not be afraid, verse 17. By the way, isn't that a great reminder for all of us? Do not be afraid is the most often repeated exhortation in the Bible. It is said that there are 365 of these reminders. I haven't counted them. One for each day of the year. God knows that sometimes life can be scary and that we need to turn to the end of the book, just like the little boy, to regain a positive perspective and to know that this world is temporary and that our hero wins. The second important characteristic of the apocalyptic literature utilized in the book of Revelation is that the narrative develops two systems, which is why this genre is called dualistic. It reveals God's way and Satan's way in the great conflict between good and evil. Readers are invited to align with God, even though they're also free to align with the evil forces. The two systems are represented by two cities, Jerusalem and Babylon, two women, the bride and the great prostitute, two numbering systems, seven and six, and so on. Written at the end of the first century of the Christian era, according to some scholars, this book was composed to encourage the faithful under difficult circumstances. This was the time of the rule of the Emperor Domitian, A.D. 81-96. He was one of the first emperors to demand to be worshipped while still alive. Others believe that the church had entered into a period of apathy, because the second coming of Jesus had not occurred, even though they had expected it soon after his ascension. And yet others believe that the early church members had become fearful because the church was facing all kinds of problems from without and within. Fear. Sounds familiar? Fear of uncertainty, fear of the future, fear of a lack of safety, fear and confusion. It certainly sounds like the author is writing for us today, doesn't it? John announces to his readers that the final showdown between our hero and the evil villain is imminent. But if they hang in there until the end, believing in the lamb who was slain, they will spend eternity with God. This is a book of worship. In other words, it is the ultimate woohoo book. Everybody's praising, everybody's singing, and everyone keeps repeating time after time, worthy is the lamb. Revelation 5.12 16 major worship scenes are portrayed in this unveiling narrative where heaven and earth erupt in songs of exaltation praising Him who has won victory by His blood. Full Circle The whole Bible is an inclusio. This is an academic term for a narrative sandwich in which something starts and ends in the same way. In the last three chapters of Revelation, we encounter the same themes that we saw in the first three chapters of the Bible, just in reversed order. This way, the Bible has symmetry. 
Remember the sequence of topics in Genesis 1 to 3, creation, Genesis 1, intimacy with God, Genesis 2, and then the evil villain who brought about sin and death, Genesis 3. Well, the last three chapters of Revelation announce the reversal of those same things. Satan is bound and destroyed and sin and evil are no more, Revelation 20. God once again dwells with his children and there is no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away, Revelation 21, 4. The intimacy with God is restored, Revelation 21. And finally, the Bible gives a description of the recreated earth with all of its original attributes, Revelation 22, and more. I can't even tell you how many times during difficult seasons in my life I have repeated and imagined this reality. No more pain, no more sickness, and no more death. Wow. Pause for a moment and read the outcome in Revelation 21, 1 to 4. I already feel better, don't you? And all of this will be possible only because Jesus died for us. He took our death upon himself so that we who are mortal because of sin and have distanced ourselves from the life giver, Genesis 3, are now handed eternal life as a gift, Romans 3.23, 6.23. The New Testament is filled with constant reminders of such an incredible exchange. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Because this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, Revelation 1, 1, this booklet will focus exclusively on some of the breathtaking portraits of Jesus in Revelation. In this booklet, we will not analyze prophecies, trumpets, or seals as important as they may be. We will focus only on some amazing pictures of Jesus, portraits of the Redeemer filled with rich images that were given to John to encourage us on our journey and to assure us of our salvation. I can still remember the sense of excitement that I felt when my father once again shared the story of the boy who loved reading books about his hero overtaking the evil villain. And now I am very much like that boy exhilarated and holding my breath as we approach the last chapter, because this is not just the end of yet another exciting book. Instead, it is the last word of the story of redemption of all humanity, including you and me. Yes, some chapters of human history and our daily lives get pretty scary. Perhaps you can't take it anymore. But before you give up, I invite you to come with me to the last book of the Bible, the last chapter in the story of salvation. And guess what? Ta-da! Jesus wins! Chapter 2. The Lamb is the Alpha and the Omega. Assurance. I expected this to be a normal trip, just like any other of my frequent trips. I arrived at the airport and checked my bag. My boarding passes were in order for my journey from Los Angeles, California to Huntsville, Alabama. The attendant made sure that my bag had a clear tag indicating the beginning and the end of my trip, recorded in the airline shorthand as LAX HSV. As she assured me, it was being checked to my final destination. 
The trip was uneventful except for a weather-related delay on the second leg of my trip. Oh, well, having to fly almost every week, I am used to delays. However, this one would make things a bit difficult. I was now scheduled to arrive in Huntsville close to midnight, and then I planned to pick up my rental car and head for the hotel a few miles away. I figured that by 1 a.m. I would be comfortably resting in my hotel and would be ready to begin the first seminar of my day and a half-long ministerial retreat some five hours later. My schedule was tight, and I planned to return to Los Angeles the following afternoon, right after the conclusion of my contribution to the retreat. I arrived in Huntsville around midnight, went to rent my car first, and then returned to pick up my bag. The airport was getting quieter at this hour of the night. The conveyor belt began to move, and one by one, the passengers took their bags and left. Except me. I was tired and did not feel like even thinking about what might have happened. I stayed around for another 20 minutes, hoping and praying that what I feared was happening wasn't really happening. The conveyor stopped, and my heart sunk. It took me years to learn the meaning of the emotional self-help slogan that popped into my mind at this time. The horse has died. Dismount. I'm the kind of person who typically does not give up easily. I walk around and wait and hope and thus may end up beating a dead horse. But the time had come to dismount. No one was at the counter, so I stood there helplessly until someone had pity on me and called some personnel. They took the description of the bag, then explained to me that the bag had been lost. Somehow, I did not feel like this was particularly novel nor useful information, and gave me a toll-free number to call. The customer service representative was not too interested in my predicament either. In just six hours, I was supposed to begin teaching dozens of ministers clad in suits and ties while all I had at the moment was a toll-free phone number and the pair of corduroy jeans I was wearing. As I was driving to my hotel early that drizzly morning, thanking God for his protecting angels while I navigated some of the darkest streets ever, I kept wondering what part of LAX HSV the baggage handlers had not understood? How could my bag be stuck somewhere in between when the beginning and the end of my journey had been so clearly stated? What part of from point A to Z did the airline scanner miss? I could write a book about what happened next. By visiting a 24-7 department store, experiencing the peace of God that surpasses the scary facts, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, and with the help of a good friend who happened to be attending the same meetings, thanks Hazel, and lent me a jacket, I was able to conduct the meetings. The in-between delay time for my bag lasted almost to the end of my visit in Huntsville. The bag arrived at my hotel room just in time for me to head back to the airport. And I will never forget how lost I felt without my clothes, the props for my presentations, my microphone, and everything else I had carefully packed in my bag. I felt lost because the airline hadn't delivered on their simple promise. We will get you from A to Z. God knows that one of the hardest places for us to be is in between, a place where we are neither here nor there. 
Deep within, we all have the need for assurance that everything is going to be okay. We long to know our final destination and to have a certainty that we are going to reach it. We all need to have an assurance greater than ourselves that reminds us that this world is temporary and that the outcome is in God's hands, not ours. We need to know for sure that this is a done deal. The truth is that we all find ourselves living in this space called in-between, between the already and the not yet. Jesus has paid the price and is victorious. The kingdom of God is already among us, but he has not yet come for us to end all pain and to recreate this earth. This is why I love the fact that in the introduction to the book of Revelation, one of the first pictures of Jesus unveiled to John is, I am the Alpha and the Omega, Revelation 1.8. In other words, hang in there. I am the A and the Z. There is no way for you to miss the destination. I am the beginning and I am the end. There's absolutely no way to get lost in between when you follow me. Blessed are you. John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, is giving the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Verse 2. Immediately following the identification of the bond servant, we find the first of the seven beatitudes or blessings listed in the book of Revelation. Revelation 1, 3, 14, 13, 16, 15, 19, 9, 26, 22, 7, and 14. Most people have heard of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, but not everyone knows that Revelation is also a book that is meant to bring blessings. Unfortunately, I have witnessed countless times when well-meaning yet mistaken apocalyptic evangelists promote fear through the book of Revelation. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near, Revelation 1.3. The reading here is done audibly so that those who hear can hear it read aloud, live. This book was read in community and everyone was invited to participate in the blessings it was meant to bring. And I just love the salutation. Grace to you and peace, verse 4. Wow, these are two big words. John uses the word grace twice in Revelation to start and to end his book. See Revelation 1, 4 and 22, 21. Who couldn't use a little grace and peace, especially if you find yourself in between, wondering about where you're heading, what the future holds, and maybe even feeling a bit like luggage stuck in some remote airport mishandled by the scanner of life. The blessings in the book, including the grace and peace from God, Revelation 1, 3, and 4, had to be spread around as soon as possible. Maybe this is why the first recipients of the final unveiling of the victorious Jesus were the seven churches in Asia. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The route between these ancient cities, about 50 miles from each other, form a sort of horseshoe, and some scholars believe that these seven cities, where the churches were located, were important postal centers, each serving a large geographical region. 
When I had the privilege of visiting the ancient Ephesus, I was overwhelmed at first and just stood there speechless. I had imagined the tour guide taking us to a lone column or something like that in the middle of nowhere and explaining that this is where the city of Ephesus once was. Instead, I found myself standing at the end of the main street of the amazingly well-preserved ruins of this very advanced and magnificent ancient city. I vividly envisioned thousands of citizens and travelers crowding through this thoroughfare of the flourishing city in the time when the book of Revelation was written. I was also able to visit the island of Patmos, where John received the unveiling of Jesus, verse 9. I tried to imagine how he must have felt on this island about 50 miles southwest of Ephesus, receiving the final chapter of the world's history and the indisputable announcement, Jesus wins. I'm sure his heart was burning as he wrote to these churches, blessed is he who reads and those who hear, verse 3. Multidirectional Assurance What comes next has been an incredible source of assurance for me throughout my life. Before we start this section, I need you to imagine or even draw or cut out of paper three arrows, one pointing to the past, left, one pointing to the present, up, and the third pointing to the future, right. Grace and peace are coming from God, the Father, the Spirit, and Jesus Christ. The spirit in this apocalyptic book is usually represented in a symbolic sevenfold fullness. Revelation 1, 4, 3, 1, 4, 5, 5, 6, 22, 6, etc. The identity of God is presented through a threefold directional assurance of his presence. Him who is and who was and who is to come. Revelation 1, 4. So there you go. Whether you're looking to the past, the present, or the future, God is there. It reminds me of the Psalm of David in which he realizes that no matter where he goes or where he looks, he finds God there. Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, death, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, If I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. Psalm 139, 7-10 Yes, no matter where your arrow is pointing to, God's presence is there. His unchangingness is our assurance. Jesus is identified in several oppositional statements that define and reinforce each other. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, Revelation 1.5. I wish we had space here to analyze each picture of Jesus included in this sentence of scripture. Then the focus turns to his redeeming activity. And once again, we have the threefold multidirectional assurance. Each arrow will be defined carefully so that you don't miss one beat of the redemption symphony. So let's start with the present arrow. To him who loves us. Verse 5. Did you get that? He loves us. This present tense verb reminds us of the ongoing love of Jesus Christ for us, right now and forever. He loves us and keeps loving and loving and loving. This is the core of the everlasting gospel. He loves us. 
now the arrow pointing to the past, and released us from our sins by his blood. Verse 5, emphasis added. In the original Greek, the past tense of the verb to release is what is called an aorist participle, which means a completed action in the past. So in order to make sure we have all of our arrows lined up straight, we need to understand that Jesus' love for us is continuous and unceasing, and the purchase of our freedom was accomplished at the cross. Then we have another past tense of a different kind that points to the ideal of what Jesus accomplished when he released us from our debt with God. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, verse 6. And I am sure many of us need to hear that Jesus loves us. I know that it is such a simple statement, isn't it? But for some reason, not all of us get that we are the beloved of the Lord. And that love is ongoing. And then John reminds us that the judgment for those who believe in Jesus happened at the cross. We have been freed. We have been released. And we have been redeemed. How I wish that everyone who reads this unveiling of Jesus would have the assurance of salvation. As my favorite biblical commentator says, we have nothing to fear for the future except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and his teaching in our past history. No wonder that John erupts in a flamboyant expression of worship before continuing with a future arrow. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Yes, amen and amen. Glory and power to him who released us. Then the third arrow, the future, is clearly outlined. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Verse 7. There you go, with the words from Daniel 7.13. Daniel is the Old Testament apocalyptic counterpart of the New Testament book of Revelation. And the allusions to Zechariah 12.10, we are shown the last page of human history. Jesus is coming back for us because he simply refuses to go through eternity without us. Oh, my Jesus, how I love you. And I can't wait to hug you and caress your nail-pierced hands that gave me life. Flamboyant Portrait In the first chapter of Revelation, we find a flamboyant multifaceted description of Jesus that assures us not only of his presence, but also of his ability to fulfill our every need. I wish we had a lot more room to analyze in detail each account. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when he has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in his strength. Revelation 1, 13 to 16. 
These descriptions of Jesus are very meaningful because they are filled with symbols that point to various aspects of his person. For example, the fact that the sharp two-edged sword comes from his mouth means that his power is in his word. John became afraid when he saw this magnificent portrait of Jesus, but he was comforted by more pictures of Jesus. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Verses 17 and 18. This amazing portrait of Jesus in Revelation 1, 13 to 18 will be highlighted again as the introduction of Jesus to each one of the seven churches will include sentences from this overall portrait. Revelation 2, 1, 8, 12, 18, 3, 1, 7, 14. Please take a moment to read chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation. Jesus is everything for everyone. He's with us. And he fulfills each one of our needs, no matter what we are facing today. The A and the Z. And just in case someone missed the forever presence of God with us, the introduction to Revelation ends with the assurance that I am was there at the beginning and that he is there at the end and that he is everything in between. Therefore, you are never out of his sight. And you are assured of reaching your destination because of who he is. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, Revelation 1.8. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Thus, in our terms, God announces that he is the A and the Z. So whether you look to the past, present, or future, he's there, and he's the victor over the villain. This idea will be repeated time after time in the unveiling of Jesus. I am the Alpha and the Omega, verse 8. I am the first and the last, Revelation 1, 17 to 8. And just in case you missed it the first time around, God makes sure that this picture of Jesus is also included in the very last chapter of the Bible. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Revelation twenty-two thirteen. I can assure you that any problem you're facing today is covered by Jesus, whose astounding picture we just discovered. Whether your problem starts with an A or a Z or any other letter in between, perhaps you need to create a large A and a large Z like I did and place them where you can see them often. This will remind you that God never intended for you to live in fear. That's why he has revealed to you the very last part of human history. As we discussed in our introductory chapter, whenever the devil seems to be winning, you can say aloud, if he just knew what I know. So tell your fear to take a hike. And let Jesus fill the very core of your soul. Fill in the blank with your name so that you can internalize this truth and never forget it. Dear blank, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Revelation 117, author's paraphrase. Chapter 3. The Lamb is the Lion. Redemption. 
We had spent the whole day at the church, and this was the last meeting of the afternoon. My dad was preaching, and my mom was taking care of me, a six-month-old baby at the time. My mother was a nurturing mom, affable and caring, but shy in public, and her usual role was to sit quietly in church next to me as I slept peacefully. However, everything suddenly changed. Unexpectedly, a strange man, whom some members had seen around the church before, came running into the sanctuary, heading straight for the place where my mom and I sat, snatched me from the seat, and took off before anybody realized what had happened. Just like that. But my mother, as quiet, soft, and shy as she usually was, at this moment turned into a whole different person. She started running after the kidnapper. The man kept running and my mother after him. Finally, he got to his pickup truck and my mother jumped into the truck on the passenger side. He said, come with me and I will explain everything. But my mother did not need his invitation. She was determined to be where I was, no matter what. He drove like a madman, as if the world was on fire. Finally, they got to a building that my mother did not recognize. He got out of the truck and ran upstairs holding me, with my mother in tow. When he finally entered a well-furnished suite, my mother realized that this was a radio station. Here, the kidnapper was greeted by a radio announcer on air. Congratulations to the first person who brought to our station a baby under 12 months old. Well, it turned out that this was a game that they often used to play on the radio back then. And the first person to show up with a requested object in this case, a baby under one year, won a pretty sizable prize. Today, we cannot even imagine such a game being played by any town's radio station, and with impunity at that. However, in those days, it obviously did not seem like such a big deal. The announcer went on, and here is the baby's mother. We are giving her a supply of diapers and dry milk for a year. While all of this was happening, my dad was still preaching at the church, totally unaware of what was going on. While my father was leading worship at the church, my mother was being congratulated live on the air at the town's radio station. All of this happened just because, instinctively, from the very beginning, my mother had made a covenant with me that she would take care of me no matter what. Wherever I went, she would go. Whatever danger should threaten me, she would be my protector and my shield. Her self-sacrificing and nurturing spirit was not a weakness, but her greatest strength instead. Such a response from a parent to a possible kidnapper is a perfect example of how the same person can be a lamb and a lion at the same time. In the book of Revelation, we find that the lamb that was slain submitted himself to the cross and thus obtained the power and strength of the Lion of Judah. Revelation 5, 5 and 6. 
the open door. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Revelation 4.1, emphasis added. Juxtaposed with the previous section where Jesus is knocking at our doors, inviting us to open them so that he may come in and dine with us, Revelation 3.20, this scene begins with an open door in heaven. I absolutely love this reminder that the door is always open from heaven's side. What an incredible truth to understand. Because of Jesus' death, the way to the throne of heaven is open. See Hebrews 10, 19 and 20. Through this open door, John beholds an indescribable scene of the throne and the one sitting on the throne, Revelation 4, 2, that is filled with covenantal reminders and descriptions that surpass human understanding. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Verse 3. What follows is one of the most flamboyant worship scenes narrated in the scriptures. With many voices, 24 elders and living creatures with six wings who don't cease to worship the Creator God. Verses 4 to 11. With the threefold praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Verse 8. Compare Isaiah 6.3, Revelation 1.4. The whole description takes my breath away, and I wish I could join in, casting my crown before the throne. Revelation 4.10. I went to sing and shout woohoo with everyone else encircling the throne. Just writing this paragraph makes my heart jump and leap with mega joy. The conclusion of Revelation 4 is an exuberant praise to God, declaring Him worthy to receive glory for being the creator of all things. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Verse 11. Everything is wonderful. The Creator is being worshipped, and everything should be okay, right? Well, it should, except that the earth rebelled against the Creator. Back in the beginning of the biblical story, Genesis 3. And therefore, the scene drastically changes, introducing the pivotal notion that we are in big trouble. Big trouble. Have you ever received really bad news right in the midst of a big celebration? Everything changes instantly. The music stops, silence sets in, and everyone becomes quiet. Have you ever gone through your day feeling happy with a smile on your face and then you get a phone call with lab results or a letter from a relative bearing bad news? Maybe you are in such a place right now. If so, please keep reading. In the next scene, John sees a scroll, Biblos containing so much information that is recorded on both sides of the scroll, Revelation 5.1. The scroll is placed in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, verse 1. Be 
picture a perfectly sealed scroll with seven seals placed on the open palm of the Creator God, containing the history and destiny of the earth and humanity. The suspense is growing. Previously, we were told that the first voice had invited John to come through the open door to behold what must take place, Revelation 4.1. But now the scroll that contains the history of the world is completely closed and sealed. What is happening? A mighty voice is heard, challenging all of creation to find someone worthy to open the scroll that will reveal the destiny of the human race, Revelation 5, 2. And then the bad news. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Verse 3. For a threefold description of the whole universe, see Philippians 2, 10 and Exodus 24. No one is worthy to even look at the scroll that contains the whole story. We are in trouble. Yes, we are in big trouble. Is the villain winning? Have all of the plans and purposes of the Creator failed? Are we, His creatures, doomed? Are we going to die by the kidnapper's hand? Has the Creator lost control of His beloved children? Did someone come running and snatch them out of his hands while he was sitting on the throne? If you have ever felt absolutely and utterly helpless and hopeless, you will understand John's response. He starts weeping and weeping bitterly in total hopelessness. Revelation 5.4 There is nothing like the darkness of the final word like a tunnel without a light at the end of it. But I thank God that for the Christian, there's always something more, something better than what the situation appears to be, something that follows the bitter weeping and the dark night. But wait, there is one. As I said before, for the believer in Jesus, there is always more than what the reality appears to be. One of the elders can hardly wait to encourage John, saying, Do not weep, because he has some incredible and amazingly good news to announce. And with a powerful behold, he introduces the greatest news human ears have ever heard. As if saying, You are not going to believe what I am about to tell you. This situation is not hopeless. No, no, no. There is one. There is one. The triumphant Lion of Judah, the Root of David, has overcome. And this is how he said it. One of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the Lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Verse 5. There is one. He's mighty and he's victorious and he's triumphant. Alluding to two prophetic messianic titles from the Jewish scriptures, the elder announces that this mighty lion is the promised one from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49.9, the descendant of David, Isaiah 11, 1 and 10, who has overcome and thus guarantees the future of humanity. Hope, hope, hope. 
We all need to know there is hope. And so does John. When he turns to see the mighty Lion of Judah that the elder had described so eloquently, surprisingly, he sees a lamb. The lamb shows signs of having been slain, yet he's standing and very much alive. There is a pattern in the book of Revelation. First, John hears something, but when he turns to see it, he finds something totally different, which, however, explains what he had heard before. You can see examples of this pattern in Revelation 1, 10 to 13, and Revelation 7, 4 and 9, where, interestingly, the 144,000 turn out to be a great multitude that no one can count. In this case, when he turns to see the lion, he finds a lamb instead. The victory of the lion of Judah has come through giving up his life as the sacrificial lamb. The fact that the lamb was slain made triumph possible once for all. Before the lamb died, everything was hopeless on the created earth. But the sacrificial death of the lamb attained the protective and mighty strength of the lion. The Greek word used for lamb, arnion, is used 29 times in the book of Revelation, and only one time elsewhere in the New Testament, John 21, 15, which underscores the uniqueness of the language John uses in this last chapter of the world's history. Only the lamb is worthy to be praised for redeeming the human race. The pivotal word in Revelation 5 is, yes, you've guessed it, worthy. Who is worthy to reveal the destiny of humankind? Only the one who redeemed it. I love this word. Perhaps I like it so much because it clarifies that none of us is worthy to be saved and that our salvation is only a gift from God. Romans 6.23 Religious people were always trying to persuade Jesus to turn to those who they, the religious people, mistakenly believe were worthy of his help. Luke 7, 4 and 6 But there is only one who is worthy. Because of his sacrifice, Jesus is worthy to control this world. He guarantees salvation and he will be praised and honored and will be the focus of universal adoration for the redemption of the earth and the children of God who inhabit it. See Revelation 5, verses 9, 11, and 12. A New Song When I was a little girl, I used to be obsessed with heaven. By the way, I still am. One of the things I was curious about was the words of the songs people will be singing to Jesus in heaven. I needed to know because I didn't want to miss the opportunity to sing to him myself. I know that it sounds a little strange, but I wondered how people would know the words of totally new songs that they never would have sung before. You see, when the Lamb takes the scroll, a new song erupts in heaven. So many things are new in the book of Revelation. A new name, a new heaven, and a new earth. Because God makes all things new. And to this awesome new revelation of Jesus, 
of what was accomplished by the Lion of Judah through the Lamb's sacrificial death, the appropriate response is a new song, a majestic song of worship, flamboyant and startlingly marvelous, a song that has never been sung before because the magnitude of his redemption has never been fully understood before. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Verses 9 and 10. I would love to write a whole book about this song. I am amazed at the details of the song, as the song answers all of the main questions about the Lamb's worthiness of everyone's praise, honor, and worship forever. When did the Lamb come to be victorious? He became victorious when he died. What did the Lamb accomplish? He purchased humanity. How did he achieve it? He accomplished it through his blood. He paid a very high price. That's why he's worthy. Who did he redeem? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. He purchased men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. No group is excluded. For whom did he purchase them? For God. He reestablished their relationship purpose from creation. And he made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And by the way, they will reign on the earth. See the promise made to Israel in Exodus 19.6, which is now a reality through redemption in Christ. Now you know why I felt special and excited as a little girl when I imagined this scene. Every time I read this chapter, I feel loved by God, appreciated, included, and I start getting a glimpse of how much Jesus gave up for me. Just a glimpse. When my mother started chasing the kidnapper, she displayed remarkable love for me because I was worth so much to her. And she did not care even if she had to lose her own life for me. But Jesus' love for me surpasses that love by far. And he actually did give up his life for me. Join in. What a celebration of worship! The elders, the living creatures, and the angels are just praising their hearts out. The focus of Revelation 4 is that God is worthy to be praised because He's the Creator. The focus of Revelation 5 switches to the Lamb, who is worthy to be praised because He's the Redeemer. They both have purposed to redeem God's creation. At one point in the narrative, Everyone joins in to praise the Creator and Redeemer. Every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Revelation 5.13 Every creature, that includes you and me. I want to start singing and praising Him already. I can't wait. Let's join this flamboyant scene of worship. I just love it. Jesus is the Lion and the Lamb. 
When your days are hard and you feel unworthy of salvation, remember the Lamb, the only worthy one. When your days are dark, the villain seems to be winning and you need somebody to defend you, remember the strength and might of the Lion of Judah and start singing. Would you like to practice right now? Write your name on the blank line of this sevenfold praise. And, blank, said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Verse 12, author's paraphrase. Chapter 4, The Lamb is the Shepherd, Provision. Public transportation was pretty much the only way for us to get around while my dad used the one car we owned for work. My mother and I were accustomed to taking a bus or the subway. But something unusual happened one day. Some buses had small signs attached to their windshields indicating different routes, even though the bus number was the same, which made things very confusing for passengers who had to figure out which bus to take to get to their intended destinations. We thought we had boarded the right bus. But soon we realized that the bus was in an area we did not recognize, definitely not the part of town where we lived, and it was getting dark. My mother decided that we needed to get off the bus right there before we got any farther away from home, and we did. This incident must have been quite traumatic for me because I still remember it quite clearly. I have images in my memory of rows of never-ending industrial buildings along the sides of the road we found ourselves on. There was hardly any lighting, and it still feels like these were the darkest streets I have ever seen. This was definitely a dangerous part of the town for a pretty young woman and her child. At that time, things were difficult in my country of Argentina. People did not venture out of their homes alone at night. Chances were they might not come back. And here we were, a mother and a child, alone in the middle of an industrial area we did not recognize, and it was too late to hope to catch another bus. So my mother, who always received what I call a heavenly strength when we were in trouble, decided that we needed to walk until we reached a more residential area and found a main street with more lighting that might have additional public transportation choices available for us. She seemed to be guided by an innate compass. I had no idea where we were or where we were heading. All I could do was hang on to her hand, as if my life depended on it. Her hand was my lifeline. And wherever she led, I was going to follow, no matter what. We walked and walked in the darkness, but seemed to be getting nowhere as the street appeared to be growing longer as we continued to walk. There were no homes, just windowless commercial buildings and danger lurking in the shadows behind dark corners. Perhaps my mother had noticed someone following us, so she told me to pick up my pace, and I started walking a bit faster. 
All along, I held her hand tightly because I knew that she was my only hope. I remember her suggesting as we walked that we repeat a verse over and over, and I distinctly remember which one we recited. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Psalm 34, 7. So we kept repeating this verse aloud as we walked and walked. Finally, we got to a residential area and my mom found a way to get us home. But I wasn't too surprised. After all, this was my mom. She could always figure things out and guide me to safety. She always protected me and provided for me. So I guess in my young mind and my trusting heart, I had fully expected her to lead us to safety. Only as I grew older could I begin to understand how scary that night must have been for her. In this chapter, we see a picture of Jesus that has brought comfort to countless people in trouble, needing protection, guidance, and provision. But most people don't know that this incredible portrait of Jesus is found in the book of Revelation. So if you are in need of guidance and leading, believe me, you will get everything you need in the unveiling of Jesus in this chapter of Revelation, including your new identity and something special to wear. These are mine. Revelation 7 starts with four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the winds of destruction. After the sixth seal has been opened in Revelation 6, 12 to 17, and before the seventh seal is opened, there is an interlude. A fifth angel cries out with a loud voice, telling the four angels to hold back these destructive winds until all those who belong to God are sealed with a mark of his ownership. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom he was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bond servants of our God on their foreheads. Revelation 7, 2 and 3. You see, God is in control of everything. He decides what he allows and when, and it all serves his redeeming purposes. In our Jesus 101 ministry, we use a stamp that has our website and other important info. We stamp books and any other resources that belong to our ministry. A seal or stamp is a mark of ownership, and God sends an angel who is to stamp, quotation marks, each servant of God before the final troubles come to the earth. A great visualization is to imagine a signet ring, used in the first century, that imprints the name of God and the Lamb on the forehead of each one of God's own people. The mark announces to the whole universe, this one is mine. It is a symbol of protection and ownership. The Greek word for servant is doulos, a word that actually means slave, as in utter devotion and total allegiance throughout the book of Revelation. God's servants bear his mark of ownership. Revelation 9, 4, 14, 1, 22, 4. The Holy Spirit testifies to our own spirits that we are His and that we have an inheritance guaranteed by the Lamb. Ephesians 1, 13, 14, 4, 30, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. In other words, the seal gives the assurance of salvation 
to those who trust in the merits of Christ. Yes, as Paul reminds us, the Lord knows those who are His. 2 Timothy 2.19, emphasis added. Very few words have brought me as much comfort as God telling me, You are mine. I feel protected and secure, guided and assured, just like holding on to my mom's hand as a little girl. During the darkest times of my life, I have reminded myself of God's words. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Isaiah 43.1, emphasis added. This verse, one of my favorites, is inscribed on my uncle's tombstone, Dr. Robert Torrey, M.D., as he sleeps in Jesus in total assurance until the second coming. Whether you're facing sickness or death, or find yourself staring at insurmountable obstacles, there is nothing like hearing God telling you, you are mine. John hears the number of those sealed, the servants who belong to God. The number, 144,000, 12 times 12 equals 144, is the number of the people of God, the spiritual Israel that is now complete and sealed permanently. The sealing of the 144,000 who represent God's people has an increased significance of protection through the troubles of the end times. For a similar image in the Old Testament, see Ezekiel 9. It is very interesting that the first tribe mentioned in this complete and sealed spiritual Israel is Judah, Revelation 7, 5. Perhaps because it is the royal tribe of the Messiah, as Jesus is a descendant of Judah through David, Revelation 5, 5. But why is it so comforting to be counted as being a part of God's people? What has he done and will he do for his own? Oh, I'm so glad you asked, because this is the best part. You are invited to be part of a glorious group that God calls his own, who will enter into an eternal heavenly bliss. You're invited to a magnificent celebration, and you don't even have to ask what you should wear. Countless White Robes In the characteristic style of Revelation, John, having heard the symbolic number of God's own people, turns to look and beholds the scene in heaven taking place after all of the tribulations on earth have passed. This is what I call the hear, then see pattern in this last book of the Bible. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. Revelation 7, 9, emphasis added. The number that he heard is now a multitude that no one could count. The inclusivity of this multitude of the saved is highlighted with the same fourfold description as in Revelation 5, 9, every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Aren't you glad that salvation is not just for one group of people that looks a certain way or speaks a certain language? I sure am. If it were not so, just my accent and my gender would be enough to exclude me in some people's eyes. But not in God's eyes. 
I can't wait to be there. The redeemed are standing before the throne and the Lamb, and they're clothed in festal gowns, spotless, white robes, and they have palm branches, emblems of triumph in their hands. I am amazed at what happens next. These perfectly dressed, victorious, spotless, and triumphant people unite in crying out with a great, from the Greek word megas, super loud voice, an announcement regarding how they got there. I just love the fact that the people of the countless multitude are aware of how utterly unworthy they are to be standing in front of the throne of God. So with an exceedingly great sound, they cry out to the whole universe why they are there. They cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation 7.10 In other words, we know exactly how we got here. We owe our salvation to God and the Lamb. Without them, we would not even have a chance. I love what happens next. When all of the angels hear the loud shout from the redeemed about how God through the Lamb made salvation possible, they just can't take it anymore. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Verses 11 and 12. With an almost identical sevenfold praise, as in Revelation 5, 12, all of the angels prostrate themselves to worship God in awe. I have a feeling we will be telling our story to the angels throughout eternity, and they will never get tired of hearing it. If the angels get super joyful when one sinner repents, Luke 15, 10, can you imagine how they will be jumping up and down, praising, singing, and woohooing when all of the redeemed are finally home? But there is one more clarification needed. Now that the universe is aware that salvation didn't come from humankind itself. An elder brings it up to John in a rhetorical question that is characteristic of prophetic writing, which means that the elder already has the answer. See Zechariah 4.5. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. Revelation seven thirteen to 15 Oh, so that's the reason. How else could a fallen human race face a holy God? They have been redeemed. When confronted with the question, John uses an emphatic sentence in Greek that means, you are the one who knows. And the elder goes on to use one of the most powerful and colorful visualizations in the whole book. The redeemed, whose own righteousness was like dirty rags, see Isaiah 64, 6, Zechariah 3, 3 to 5, have now clothed themselves with the righteousness of Christ. Can you imagine the colorful explanation? They have dipped, 
their dirty black robes in red blood, and they came out spotless white. And this is the only reason they will be able to stand before the most holy God. What striking imagery. By faith in his death, we receive his robe of righteousness. Dirty black becomes white because of the red. Praise the Lord for the heavenly bleach offered to us as a gift. Romans 6.23 This theme that God, through the blood of the Lamb, has triumphed on behalf of the human race is repeated throughout the final book of the Bible. Revelation 5.9 and 12, 7.14, If you are a believer in Jesus, you must come to believe that God sees you as if you had never sinned because of the merits of His Son. If not, you will live your life in utter shame and guilt. And that is definitely not what God has in mind for you through eternity. The Lamb is my shepherd. What is revealed next is one of the most beautiful pictures of Jesus in all of Scripture. God spreads His tent, or tabernacle, over the redeemed. The Greek word for tabernacle is skene. The same word was used in the Greek Old Testament for the tent of meeting or tabernacle in the wilderness, Exodus 26, 13. The presence of God is with them from now on. The tabernacle of God is now among his people, and he will tabernacle with them forever, see Revelation 21, 3. All of the evils that his own suffered on this earth will be no more. We are reminded of the blissful, eternal existence of the redeemed with a series of negatives. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. Revelation 7, 16. Compare Isaiah 49, 10. You can continue with your own list. No more cancer. No more tears, no more broken relationships, no more financial problems, no more domestic violence, no more child abuse, no more blank, no more blank, and no more blank. These images from Isaiah are so vivid that John uses them again at the end of the book as a summary of the blissful future of those who follow the Lamb, Revelation 21, 3 and 4. They will not hunger or thirst. Nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down, for he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. Isaiah 49.10 See also Isaiah 25.8 What follows is the picture of Jesus that I have been waiting to introduce to you throughout this chapter. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Revelation 7, 17. In a paradoxical and striking expansion of the role of the Lamb, the Lamb now becomes their shepherd. He has provided for their salvation, and He will provide whatever else they need forever and ever. He guides them to springs of water. He leads them to places of rest. No more tears and no more death. Jesus being the perfect shepherd king was prophesied many times in the Jewish scriptures, especially in Ezekiel 34. 
In Ezekiel 34, the shepherds of Israel were not doing their jobs, and the sheep were scattered, hungry, and lost. So God promised that he himself would take care of the problem and search for his sheep. He would send a descendant of David who would give them rest. See verse 15, Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30, and feed them. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd, Ezekiel 34, 23. Perhaps you want to take a moment to read all of Ezekiel 34, which is one of the most passionate chapters in Scripture, where God promises to take care of his sheep. Jesus himself announced this reality. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, John 10, 11. Now, in Revelation 7, the lamb becomes the shepherd. I'm fascinated by this picture of Jesus. I have learned that sheep in general are very helpless animals. They can't instinctively find food or water. They need protection from predators. They can easily drown if they try to drink in deep waters. They can't sleep if there are problems, such as tensions between the flock or bugs that bother them. Sheep are absolutely and completely dependent on the shepherd to provide everything for them, including a peaceful and quiet place, green pastures, restful waters, and everything else. The sheep don't know where they are or where they are going. They just need to follow their shepherd. Are you in need of guidance, leading, provision, hope, rest, and restoration? I have a need for all these things, so I have a great idea. Let's see if we can now understand the fullness of Psalm 23, applied to the real shepherd, who is the Lamb. Fill in the blanks with your name. The Lamb is blanks shepherd. Blank shall not want. The Lamb makes blank lie down in green pastures. The lamb leads blank beside quiet waters. The lamb restores blank's soul. Psalm 23, 1-3, author's paraphrase. Remember, the shepherd knows what he's doing. He provided for your salvation and for everything else. Just don't let go of his hand and you will be forever safe. Chapter 5 The Lamb is the Victor Celebration It was 1978, and I will never forget that year as long as I live. It was the only time in my life that I experienced an unplanned corporate celebration, an exuberant and spontaneous expression of solidarity and joy, in which we all felt a sense of victory and at the same time admiration for those who made us triumphant. As many of you know, the sport of soccer is a big deal in Argentina, my country of origin. Soccer's World Cup is probably the biggest event in worldwide sports. It is similar to the Olympic Games with the exception that every country is playing the same sport. The qualifying games actually start two years ahead of time. 
National teams are eliminated one by one until there is a prestigious battle of the remaining titans, in which the winner will be crowned the champion of the world. The World Cup occurs every four years, and 1978 was the year when it took place in Argentina. It has not happened there since then, and I don't know when it might happen again. So you might say that it was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. At that time, I was in high school, and I clearly remember the country preparing to host all of the qualifying teams, representing countries from all over the world, now visiting and competing in our very own land. There was a distant dream in most of our young minds that our very own team might make it to the finals. What would that look like? What would we do? What kind of celebration would we have if the representatives of our country, our very own team, would win the World Cup in our own geographical territory? It was unimaginable. And I think most of us didn't even plan on a celebration because it was almost impossible. Yet I recall the day, as if it were yesterday, when I went to my grandmother's house in the little town where I attended a boarding school, and we sat on our chairs in front of the small TV set to watch our country play against Holland in the final game. We could barely breathe or eat or talk. It was all too good to be true. When the 90 minutes of the game were over, both teams were tied. So they went for another 30 minutes. As you can probably tell, I remember every detail about it, even who scored during the extra time, securing the ultimate victory for Argentina. What happened next is a mystery to me, even to this day. As if we all got some invisible preset cue, no matter where we had gone to watch the game, the students all ran to the center of our campus where the flagpole was and we raised the flag as we sang and celebrated. The whole country stopped for three days. In the capital city of Buenos Aires, millions of people went out to the streets to celebrate. Work stopped. Traffic stopped. Everything stopped because it was time to celebrate. Somehow, we were all victorious, even though only the members of the team representing us had played the game. And now we all felt an unprecedented sense of solidarity and belonging. The closest thing to being all together was to assemble by the Argentinian flag. No matter where in the country we found ourselves or how small the town was, or if we were male or female, young or old, dark-skinned or light-skinned, Somehow, we were all united in celebrating the triumph that our representatives had gained for us. We could do nothing else but join in the unprecedented, unplanned, spontaneous, and flamboyant celebration. In this chapter, we will analyze two triumphant pictures of Jesus, the victorious Lamb. As our representative and leader, he has fought against the villain and has won. Many times during difficult days, these two pictures of Jesus have reminded me that the final outcome is assured because he has triumphed in battle, in the great controversy between good and evil. Even though we look around sometimes and we still see many bad things happening, 
this time will not last for long. We're about to cross to the promised land. Hang in there. Gather around his banner and get ready to celebrate. The Triumphant Lamb John looks and finds a vivid scene and paralleled in the book of Revelation. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. Revelation 14, 1. The number of the complete spiritual Israel that we analyzed in the previous chapter is the same number as the group that is now standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion. Not one has been lost in the final tribulations, which means that the sealed group and the saved group are one and the same. They bear the mark of the Lamb on their foreheads as opposed to those who bear the mark of the evil system that opposes God's way of salvation. Revelation 13, 16. Revelation 14, 1 is the only time that Mount Zion is mentioned in the book of Revelation. Throughout the Bible, Mount Zion was the center of the rule of the kingdom of God. Psalm 2, 6, 48, 1 and 2. And was the place that pointed to the ultimate delivery of his people. Isaiah 52, 7, 59, 20. Also in the New Testament, Zion represents the final victory of Jesus' reign and those who trust in him. Romans 9.33, Hebrews 12.22, 1 Peter 2.6. Now the Lamb is standing victorious as the triumphant King reigning in Zion and those who bear the mark of his name and his father's name on their foreheads, the same group that was sealed in Revelation 7.3, his very own are with him forever. The Lamb is triumphant over evil, and we, the redeemed, gather around the one who is our flag, our banner, and our standard. See Exodus 17, 15, Numbers 21, 8 and 9, Isaiah eleven ten. In Greek, all three of these Old Testament narratives use the word that means banner or standard. You might want to take some time to analyze these narratives that teach us that Jesus will be our banner or standard. The Lamb is the standing victor because his triumph was on our behalf. We're all jumping up and down, singing, playing instruments, and celebrating because his victory has purchased our freedom. The celebration gets so loud and so exuberant that John describes it with three different sentences because one is not enough. He tries to explain what the celebration sounds like, and he uses three similes, sentences that compare what he's hearing to something like many waters, loud thunder, and harps. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, Revelation 14.2. Well, right now I want to tell you that I will be one of those people making a lot of noise. In his vision, John probably heard my yell of woohoo and compared it with many waters and loud thunder. And all of the redeemed, excited and exceedingly joyful, start singing a new song that is our very own because no one else can sing it. It is the woohoo redemption song. 
They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000. Verse 3. Emphasis added. In contrast to other worship scenes in Revelation, where everyone is praising and singing in the heavenly realms, this particular song can only be sung by the 144,000. Why? Really? Why is that? Oh, as always, I'm so glad you asked me these questions, because in this case, the answer follows right there in the text itself. Except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. Verse 3. That's why. Because we're the only ones who can sing the song of redemption that tells the story that no one else can tell. And we will sing our hearts out. The Lamb reigns. The Lamb reigns. I am so glad that God decided to show John this particular picture of the victorious Jesus. I am sure that for the people of the first century and for us, more than 2,000 years later, this portrait of Jesus comforts and sustains the core of the soul when circumstances are dark in our lives. You see, like the boy in the beginning of this book, sometimes we watch the news and it seems like the villain is winning. Terrible disasters, people going crazy and killing each other, domestic violence and sexual abuse. Sometimes even in our families, we're facing death and pain, cancer and illness, broken vows and depression. But this picture of the victorious lamb and all of us around him celebrating his triumph reminds us that pain and evil are temporary situations and that soon our hero will take over and all the hurts and pain of this earth will be no more. A long time ago, I decided that I was going to start celebrating now because, just like the boy in our introductory chapter, I read the last chapter of the book on the world's history. And I know how it ends. Jesus wins. Bearers of Good News Following the vision of the triumphant Lamb standing on Mount Zion, the ultimate reality of the reigning Jesus surrounded by his own, God shows John that, in his mercy, he will send three angels, three final bearers of the good news, that proclaim the victory of the Lamb to the whole earth, so that everyone may have the opportunity to be part of that celebration group. These messengers announce in very clear and unequivocal terms the victory of the Lamb. I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. Verse 6, emphasis added. At this moment, it is expedient that we understand why these are messengers that carry the everlasting and eternal gospel to the world. The Greek noun euangelion is translated into English as good news or gospel, a term that comes from the Old English God spell, which means good news. This term and its equivalent Hebrew term was used when messengers would come from a battlefield bringing good news of victory announcing to the inhabitants of a city that their king had been triumphant in battle, and now they could celebrate their freedom. Imagine, if you please, the sentinels of a fortified city waiting on top of the walls for a messenger from the battlefield. 
Sometimes they would come on horses, sometimes on foot, and they would bring good news or bad news, depending on the results of the battle. If it was bad news, they would run or gallop in a certain way, so the inhabitants of the city would know that they had become prisoners of the enemy camp, at best. If it was good news, they would run or gallop in a different way, so the people anxiously watching from the city towers could announce to everyone the good news that they were free because their king had won. You could hear the messenger from afar crying out in a loud voice, Evangelion, good news, our king has won. The Greek term was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint or LXX to announce God's ultimate deliverance of his people. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news or gospel, who announces peace and brings good news or gospel of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns, Isaiah 52, 7, emphasis added. This is why it is so important that after John's vision of the victorious Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, surrounded by the redeemed, God reveals to John that he's sending to the earth three final messengers that are carrying the good news, the everlasting gospel. See Revelation 14, 6 crying in a loud voice that the Lamb has, in fact, won the battle between good and evil. In summary, each one of the angels announces an aspect or angle of the eternal good news. The first heavenly messenger invites the whole earth to worship the Creator God, to pledge allegiance to the one who made the heavens and the earth, verse 7, and it announces the good news that the hour of His judgment has come. For the everlasting sign, the eternal weekly celebration of remembrance of creation and redemption, see Genesis 2, 2, Exodus 20, 8 to 11, Deuteronomy 5, 12 to 15, Isaiah 66, 23, etc. For the believers, this is really good news because they were judged when the Lamb went through His hour at the cross. The redeemed have already been justified by faith, Romans 3, 23 to 26. 8, 1. And throughout Revelation, they keep asking God to finally bring about His judgment, avenging their blood. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer. Revelation 6, 10 and 11. The judgment is really good news for the saved. And God is fully vindicated. The second angel announces that the opposing satanic system has collapsed. Revelation 14, 8. The Lamb has won and Babylon has fallen. The first time the concept of Babylon as a system of pride and confusion is mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis 11, 9. See also Genesis 10, 10. When the inhabitants of the earth decide that they will make their own system in opposition to God's and find their own way to save themselves. So Babylon has always represented pride and confusion, even in the time of the prophets, Daniel 4. We can even find the concept of Babylon within the church. When people look for ways to save themselves, perhaps trusting in their own good works instead of washing their robes in the blood of the Lamb. In Revelation, good and evil are both represented by cities. 
God's system is represented by the New Jerusalem on Mount Zion, and the evil system is represented by Babylon. The second messenger brings good news announcing that the capital city of the dragon's evil system has fallen. It's on the ground. Finito. Done. Jesus won. The third bearer of good news reminds everyone that God knows his own. Revelation 14, 9 to 12. And you can't stay on the fence. Either you have the mark of the lamb on your forehead or you have the other mark from the enemy camp. If you trust in the lamb, you're safe. So know that if you trust in the blood of the lamb, God has sealed you with a stamp that says, this one is mine. And it will be clear because you will pledge your allegiance to God by upholding his commandments and trusting in the merits of Jesus, who has won the victory on your behalf. Verse 12. How lovely are the feet of these messengers who bring good news to the redeemed who bring good news of happiness, who announce salvation and say to Zion, Your God reigns. The Lamb wins. Isaiah 52, 7. Author's paraphrase. That song again? At this point in the narrative, the second triumphant picture of Jesus that I want to share with you is introduced. After the last bearers of good news have been sent to every nation throughout the whole earth, with the eternal gospel that offers salvation only through the blood of the Lamb, then the end comes as prophesied by Jesus himself. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Matthew 24, 14. John sees seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last. Revelation 15, 1. Finally, the end has come. And immediately the concept of plagues takes us back to Egypt and the Exodus when God delivered his people from their evil oppressors through the final plagues. See Exodus 7 to 11 for the majestic showdown between the God of Israel and the gods of the Egyptians defeated through each one of the plagues. More importantly, for the final plague, the people of Israel, oppressed by the Egyptians, were to prepare themselves for deliverance by making sure they were covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. Exodus 12 and 13. This way, they would be safe. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of this house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. Exodus 12, 21-23, emphasis added. That was the sign that these were God's own, for they trusted in the blood of the Lamb. In the book of Revelation, those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Passover Lamb, who is Jesus, see 1 Corinthians 5, 7, now bear His name on their foreheads. Revelation 7, 3, 14, 1. Can you imagine getting ready for that deliverance? The Israelites had been waiting for hundreds of years to be freed from the bondage of Egypt. 
We have been waiting for 6,000 years to be delivered from this world of evil and sin. You probably know what happened next because you have seen it in the best movies and magnificent representations of the miraculous opening of the Red Sea or Sea of Reeds and how God, after the plagues, delivered them and took his people to the promised land. Before we go any farther, let's pause for a moment to ponder the celebration that occurred when the Israelites crossed the sea. It's a woohoo song of deliverance. It mentions the Lord, Yahweh, many times because they know that they have been redeemed not by their own power or abilities, but by the intervention of God through the blood of the Lamb. I hope you take a moment to read the whole song in Exodus 15. This deliverance song, recorded in Exodus 15, in most Bibles is entitled the Song of Moses, but it highlights the mighty hand of the Lord who was able to redeem His people. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. Verse 13. What a party that must have been! How loud the song! How flamboyant the dancing! And how vibrant their instruments! In some ways, as it was for me in 1978, it is easy to celebrate when the whole thing is over and you are on the other side, amazed by the victory. But this is the beauty and newness of the narrative in Revelation 15. That even though the plagues are still to happen, the first thing John sees is the celebration of the redeemed. I just love it. The exodus is in the background as well as the crossing of the sea. And the redeemed sing the same song of Exodus 15. Now they're not just celebrating freedom from Egypt, but the final freedom from evil and sin. Woohoo! John describes it like this. I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Revelation 15, 2-4, emphasis added. Now we understand. The song of Moses is also the song of the Lamb. Yes, the Lamb is the triumphant Redeemer, the greater Moses. He made a way when there was no way. Get your harps. Let's celebrate. This is the song that only we, the undeserving yet redeemed, can sing. See Revelation 14.3, Let's start now. For a long time, I have been fascinated with the fact that the Exodus is symbolic of our ultimate redemption and journey to the Promised Land and New Jerusalem, which is only possible through the blood of the Lamb. This theological theme runs from the beginning to the end of the Bible. I became even more obsessed with the topic when I discovered something really special in the Transfiguration account, when Moses and Elijah, the representative of the Law and the Prophets, showed up to discuss with Jesus his upcoming death in Jerusalem. The literal translation of the words in the Greek original are so striking that you might need to sit down if you're standing. And behold, two men were conversing with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who having appeared in glory, were speaking of the 
exodus of him, which he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. Luke 9, 30 and 31, Greek-English interlinear New Testament, emphasis added. Did you get that? Jesus fulfilled the exodus in Jerusalem. I can imagine Moses encouraging Jesus, saying, Hang in there. I have seen the faces of the redeemed after crossing the sea, and you're about to accomplish the ultimate exodus to redeem the whole world. In Exodus 15, a detail from the Song of Moses that has always caught my attention is recorded at the end of the song. Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing. Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. Verses 20 and 21. Now, I have a question. Who packs a timbrel when planning to cross the wilderness by foot? When you're trying to have the lightest backpack possible, you choose every single thing carefully because your bags will feel really heavy after a few days. Who decides to add an instrument of praise in one's suitcase? You know what? I have the answer. Only one who is expecting a woohoo moment. Only those waiting for a moment so great and flamboyant, a mighty act of God so magnificent that it will take your breath away and you will have to give in to a majestic celebration. And the Israelites experienced that. All the women of Israel had the same expectation and were also carrying timbrels. Verse 20. Now I have an invitation for you. How about if we start celebrating right now before we cross over? How about if no matter what we're going through, we decide to live from this day forward with a gratitude attitude that takes over our lives and becomes contagious for everyone we come in contact with? Let's gather around the Lamb who stands triumphant as a standard and banner for all the people, Isaiah 11:10, and start celebrating and singing now. The Lamb is already victorious because He accomplished the exodus in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, Luke 9:31. Now we're about to enter the promised land. Our voices are ready, our instruments in our hands. How about we start singing from now until eternity? Join me in the woohoo song of the redeemed. Ready? One, two, three, four. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy. His child and forever I am. Chapter 6, The Lamb is the Bridegroom, Faithfulness. He did what any husband would have done for his wife, reported an online news service. Footnote, Huffington Post, January 16, 2012. Recounting an emotional event that took place on January 13, 2012, as the Costa Concordia cruise ship was sinking off the west coast of Italy. When Francis Cervell and his wife Nicole realized that the ship was going down and the lifeboats were virtually impossible to lower, they decided to jump into the water. However, there were not enough life jackets available on the cruise liner. They only had one 
between the two of them. Francis was a strong swimmer. He handed the life jacket to his wife and said, Swim ahead, darling. I'll survive. She never saw him again. The whole world was stunned when the luxury cruise ship, carrying more than 4,000 passengers, went down in a terrible tragedy that left many dead, several injured, and hundreds emotionally scarred for life. But it is in the midst of such a crisis that real love reveals its true colors. Self-sacrificing love is willing to give up one's life for that of another. Francis gave his life so that his wife, of 40 years, could live. I owe my life to my husband, said the now heartbroken Mrs. Arvell. And she does. It is only real love that makes the ultimate sacrifice. When disaster strikes, instances of people giving their lives for their loved ones remind us that the human heart still carries the image of its creator deep within. How could God demonstrate the magnitude and scope of his love for us? How could he communicate the depth, width, and strength of his love for a fallen race when the noblest values and displays of human feeling don't even come close to expressing it? Well, he decided to use the love of a husband for his wife and of parents for their child the two deepest bonds of love that exist on this earth, to give us a glimpse of his love for us. These two metaphors are used throughout the Bible to unveil the passion of a God who loved us more than himself and ultimately gave up his life for his people who had rejected him. In this chapter, we will concentrate on the first metaphor, the lamb as the bridegroom, and the announcement of the much-awaited wedding feast. We will marvel at God's plan to save his people with the passion of a lover who willingly surrenders his own life for his beloved bride. Then the triumphant lamb takes his bride home forever, never to be apart again. The words keep ringing in my ears as if Jesus were saying them to me. Go ahead, darling. I'll catch up. Then he went to the cross and died in my place, giving me his own life jacket that I may now have the assurance of eternal life with him. This is a love story that has continued as long as the history of the world itself. And the next stage is eternity. Hallelujah. The word hallelujah occurs only four times in the New Testament. And all four instances are found in Revelation 19, 1 to 6. This is why this section is usually entitled the fourfold hallelujah. This word is a compound Hebrew word of two concepts, to praise, halal, and the name of the Lord, Yahweh, Yah. Therefore, the meaning of hallelujah is praise the Lord or praise God. The Hebrew word has been transliterated in Greek, which means that it still sounds like the Hebrew word. The first three hallelujahs are praises to God because he has finally intervened to judge and deliver his people. Revelation 19, 1, 3, and 4. I bet some of you are jumping up and down right now at the sight of the end of death and sickness, tears, and evil. I know I am. You will never again hear the question, 
Why does God allow evil? He won't ever again. He's victorious and has brought judgment on the evil satanic system that oppressed God's own. Remember that Revelation is a dualistic prophetic narrative that constantly reminds us of the great controversy between God and Satan, between good and evil. It is symbolized by two cities, New Jerusalem and Babylon, two women, the bride of the Lamb and the great harlot, two marks, the mark of the Lamb and the mark of the beast, and so on. In this case, the first three hallelujahs praise God for his judgment on the evil system and his triumph over the satanic forces. Then, in a crescendo of intensity, the fourth hallelujah arrives with the magnificent image of a heavenly marriage. The fourth and last hallelujah no longer highlights the judgments of God, but the upcoming marriage of the Lamb with His beloved, His church. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Verses 6 and 7. Using three similes, John announces that the time for the marriage of the Lamb has finally arrived. Only one other time in the New Testament do we find the exuberant combination of rejoice and be glad, and it is from the mouth of Jesus in Matthew 5:12. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Verses 11 and 12, emphasis added. Now the time of the reward has come, the marriage of the Lamb. This flamboyant theme is used repeatedly toward the end of Revelation. Revelation 19, 9, 21-2 and 9, 22-17. As the final reunion of God with His church becomes a happy reality. The metaphor of Israel as God's bride was used throughout the Jewish scriptures. Isaiah 54, 6, 61, 10, 62, 5, Jeremiah 2, 32. Ezekiel 16.8, Hosea 2.14-20. The second coming as a marriage and Jesus as the bridegroom was used in the Gospels. Matthew 22.2-25.1, Mark 2.19, John 3.29. Now the time has come. The wedding invitations have been sent out and a glorious announcement is made. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19.9 Before we head to this marriage supper, let's get to know the bridegroom a little better. The faithful bridegroom. A lover does not give up easily, and neither did God when his beloved chose to leave him in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3 When the crisis arose, he spoke to the devil the serpent of old, Revelation 12, 9, in the presence of Adam and Eve, he announced that this was not the end, that even if he had to die for them, he would not give up. This is the first assurance of love in the Bible. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, 
and you shall bruise him on the heel. Genesis 3.15 God had a plan. He threw the only life jacket to his beloved. Even though they would be separated temporarily because the humans were mortal now and had lost the paradises, verses 24, Greek Old Testament, God would take their death upon himself so that they could be together again forever. He simply refused to go through eternity without his cherished bride. He would not only be their creator, but also their redeemer. He would swim, quotation marks, in their place, and he would die in the process. This brings us to one of the most fascinating themes in the scriptures, the goel. I truly believe that once we understand this concept present from Genesis to Revelation, we will really start to comprehend the plan of salvation. Goel is a Hebrew word meaning kinsman, redeemer. The closest of kin could do several things for his beloved relative that no one else could do. We will spend more time on this theme in the next chapter. For example, the Goel could redeem a relative who had sold himself or herself into slavery. Leviticus 25, 47-54. He could set him or her free. Also, the Goel could redeem property that was given up by a poor relative. Verses 25-34. to 34. And the Goel was the one who would marry the widow of a close relative who had died without descendants in order to provide for the widow and to ensure that the family lineage continued, thus removing the shame from the kin. The book of Ruth is written with this concept in mind. Take a moment to read it. It is a fascinating love story. When Naomi and Ruth became widows and came back to Bethlehem as two destitute women, they discovered that Boaz was their Goel. And they rejoiced. Ruth 2.20 Eventually, Ruth asked Boaz to take her under his protection and provision. I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid. For you are a close relative, Goel. Ruth 3.9 He did. And Ruth's shame was taken away. He became her redeemer. Well, here it is. When God created us in his image, he pledged himself to our rescue plan because he was our closest of kin. He's our goel and we are his beloved. This word becomes a descriptive name for God in the scriptures, usually translated as redeemer, Isaiah 63:16. When Jesus became flesh, he fulfilled all the roles of the goel, giving his life as a ransom, thus redeeming us with his blood, not money, Mark 10:45. Isaiah 52, 3, as well as redeeming our land. And he purchased descendants for God from a race that was as good as dead. And this is why Isaiah 53 contains this incredible statement of satisfaction. He will see his offspring as a result of the anguish of his soul. He will see it and be satisfied. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11, emphasis added. The Goel is the most amazing theme running throughout the scriptures. It proclaims that we can live with the assurance of eternal life when we trust in the ransom paid by our goel. I know that my Redeemer lives. Job 19.25 Now the wedding of the Redeemer and his redeemed is announced. Oh, my dear beloved, spread your covering over me. Remove my shame and take me home. I am your bride and I can't wait. Provisions for the Bride 
In order to fully savor the New Testament language of marriage relating to the final union of Jesus with his church, we need to understand a Hebrew wedding in the first century. The Hebrew wedding usually began with the betrothal at the house of the bride's father, where the groom paid the dowry. The two were, afterwards, considered husband and wife. The groom then returned to his father's house to prepare the place where he and his bride would live. During that time, the bride stayed at her father's home, preparing herself for the wedding. When both the place and the bride were ready, the bridegroom would return to take the bride to his father's house, where the wedding ceremony was to take place. Matthew 25, 1-10. Ranko Stefanovic, Revelation of Jesus Christ. This understanding informs our interpretation of the marriage metaphor. Yet we find some even more exciting and unusual details that make this a unique wedding, different from all the others. As you probably have witnessed in your own or somebody else's wedding, the bride usually takes quite some time in getting ready, things like an aroma bath in a spa, a special hairdo, and of course, choosing and fitting her wedding dress just perfectly. But in this final wedding, the lamb, who is the bridegroom, does everything for the bride. He becomes the dowry, giving up his own life for her. He washes the bride clean. He provides the white dress. He does everything himself. The bride just loves him back because he first loved her, 1 John 4.19, and pledges allegiance to her beloved. Check out all that he has done to make sure the bride is ready. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. Ephesians 5, 25-27, emphasis added. The bridegroom even gave her the cleansing bath, and he gave her the dress. Now that we have more information, let's review our passage. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Revelation 19, 7-9. In contrast to the harlot's attire, it was given to her, the bride, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. Revelation 17, 4, 18, 16, 19, 8. God taking the initiative regarding the bride's dress is extremely important. Contrary to the theology of the entire book of Revelation, some people have tried to interpret the sentence that follows in a legalistic manner, as if the actions of the saints are meritorious for salvation. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Revelation 19.8 The Greek word translated as righteous acts, dikaioma, also has the meaning of righteous judgments or acquittals. Revelation 15.4 Compare with Romans 5.16-18 It informs us about the way God views believers through the merits of Christ. 
Dedikaiomata, plural, were given to the saints, not provided by them. Leon Morris, Revelation. Therefore, no matter how this word is translated in English, it is clear that the bright and clean robe of the bride has been washed in the blood of the Lamb. See Revelation 7, 9, and 14. The offer to buy white robes from Christ has already been introduced at the beginning of the book, Revelation 3.18, in the section addressed to the church in Laodicea. Now, those who have chosen Christ's righteousness instead of their own are dressed in fine linen. John states that the Lamb's bride was given to array herself in bright and clean linen. The fact that the bride was given to clothe herself with fine linen indicates that it was not her own righteous deeds that make up a gown of meritorious works or self-righteousness. The white robes are not self-made or self-earned, but are supplied by Christ and are given to God's redeemed people. The righteous deeds are thus Christ's gift to his people. Stefanovic, Revelation of Jesus Christ Following the explanation of what the bride will be wearing, the fourth beatitude of the total seven is announced. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Revelation 19, 9. Yes, we're blessed. So blessed. Beggars invited to the final eternal feast. That's who we are. Blessed is an understatement. Ecstatic and crazy happy is a better translation. Or woohoo, blessed. Breathtaking portrait. A few years ago, we celebrated my parents' 50th wedding anniversary, and it was an incredibly joyful occasion. At the entrance of the hall where the festivities were taking place, there were various exhibits displayed. Among other things, the displays included the first portraits my parents had sent each other. They were around 13 years old when they started a special friendship. Mementos from the wedding shower, wedding gifts, and the upper part of my mother's wedding dress. If you watch the DVD that is available with this booklet, you will see some of the photos of their wedding. My mother looks truly stunning, and my father has a sparkle in his eyes as they were leaving the church in their just-married car, as if saying, she's mine, all mine, from this day forward. Both of them look so excited and so in love. All of these memories are extra special now because each one of them have, by God's grace, and through their mutual love, survived three different kinds of cancers. By the way, thank you for your prayers for them over the years. Can you imagine what we will feel when we finally meet our heavenly bridegroom who gave his life for us? Even though the previous announcement of marriage in Revelation 19 has prepared us for a vision of the bridegroom, John sees a mighty warrior as a decorated general coming victorious with his armies to deliver his future bride from the oppressor's hands. There are so many details in this breathtaking portrait of Jesus that I couldn't possibly discuss them all in this chapter. Please take a moment to read Revelation 19. 11 to 16, and the awesome description of Jesus' coming. 
There are many important details in this narrative, but I will mention only a few. I hope you get so excited about it that you decide to do some more research on your own. The first thing that caught my attention was that once again, John saw heaven opened. Verse 11. This time, not for John to behold the throne and the heavenly worship seen as in Revelation 4, 1 to 4, but for Jesus to come down from heaven. The next amazing detail is that his name is described four times in this short narrative, Revelation 19, 11 to 16. One, he's called faithful and true, verse 11. Two, he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself, verse 12. Three, his name is called the Word of God, verse 13, compare John 1, 1. And finally, four, on his robe and on his thigh, there is a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, verse 16. These descriptions of Jesus' name offer a portrait of who he is that surpasses by far just a simple photographic snapshot of him. This is a full portrait from different angles that encompasses who he is and what it took for him to redeem us. He is all these things and much more. I also noticed that we are told about his weapon to wage war. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Verse 15. It is extremely important to understand that his sword is his word. That's why it comes from his mouth. But perhaps the most amazing part of this breathtaking portrait for me is the robe Jesus is wearing. You see, this is a sparkling white scene. Everything is white. Christ is sitting on a white horse, verse 11, and the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him in white horses, verse 14. White, the color of victory, is everywhere. The horses are white and everyone is wearing white, except one. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, verse 13. Wow, even just writing this verse on the page took my breath away. Unlike most paintings of Jesus' second coming, we see in this depiction that in the midst of the spotless white angels and white horses, there is one wearing a robe dipped in red as a reminder of the high price he paid for his beloved bride, his own blood. He overcame not by shedding the blood of others, but by shedding his own. Morris, Revelation 2.24 Have you fallen in love with the Lamb? I'm sure you have. If not, check your pulse. Till death do us part? I'm sure you have heard the Christian marriage vows before. Perhaps you said them in your own wedding ceremony. We promise to be faithful to each other in sickness and in health, for richer or poorer, and so on. Then the final sentence, till death do us part. Wonderfully, with our heavenly bridegroom, it is the exact opposite his death is what reunites us and guarantees our eternal life with him. 
The Bible ends with an amazing scene of the New Jerusalem, the holy city of God's beloved, who are finally together with God. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Revelation 21, 2-4. Finally, God with us forever, without pain, sickness, or death. Aren't you excited? All of heaven is so excited about His bride, us. Everyone is talking about the bride. Then one of the seven angels came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Verse 9. Yes, all of heaven is so excited about you. I know that in this life, sometimes those who were supposed to love us have broken their vows and left us heartbroken. But that is not the way it is with our heavenly bridegroom. He is so eager to have us home with him forever. Do you remember how excited you were to see your future spouse come down the aisle? And how you couldn't wait for the ceremony and reception to end so that you could finally go to your new home together for the rest of your lives? Well, if you have experienced something like that, maybe you can imagine Jesus in heaven, eagerly waiting for the time to see you face to face and give you the biggest hug ever. I can't wait. The bride of the Lamb doesn't want to wait any longer, so the bride extends an invitation to everyone to come. We're so excited that the wedding of the Lamb is at hand that we don't want anyone to miss being part of the church, Christ's bride. So we start proclaiming what the rest of heaven is saying. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Revelation 22, 17. Yes, come and join us. Are you thirsty? There is plenty of water. There is plenty of room. And there are plenty of white robes. So let's get ready. Our Goel, who handed us his life jacket and died in our place and then was resurrected is now coming back. I can't wait for that hug after all of these years. He is eager to embrace us, and I'm starting to hear the wedding march. Here comes the groom. Yes, I'm coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Verse 20. Chapter 7 The Lamb is the beginning and the end. Restoration. 
November 1, 2010, was the date set for the trial of Brian David Mitchell, who on March 1 of the same year was found competent to stand trial. He was the primary suspect in the June 5, 2002 kidnapping of Utah teenager Elizabeth Smart. This case fascinated me from the very beginning. I watched many news and video clips about this kidnapping. Elizabeth was abducted from her own bedroom in Salt Lake City at the age of 14. Ed Smart, her father, went on television that same morning pleading and begging the kidnapper to return his girl. She was found nine months later on March 12, 2003, a mere 18 miles from her home. During the nine-month ordeal, the whole town was dressed up in blue ribbons, waiting for her safe return. Everyone was praying and hoping until that significant day when someone recognized Brian Mitchell from a sketch of the suspected kidnapper. He was accompanied by two women. One of them was Elizabeth. I was grateful and relieved when she was found. The way the whole town celebrated her homecoming, which signs placed literally in every possible place, touched me deeply. Businesses no longer advertised their services, but placed Elizabeth, welcome home signs instead. I felt something very special when I read those signs, perhaps because it is also my name. Many times my mind went ahead to the day I will be reunited with my creator and redeemer. I imagined many signs in heaven with the same inscription, Elizabeth, welcome home. At the time of her recovery, I was deeply touched by her father's emotions and the statements he made. He responded to a reporter who asked him to describe the first moments when he knew for sure that Elizabeth was alive. He said that he was in a police car with Elizabeth in his arms, and he called his wife. You are not going to believe this, sobbing as he related the dialogue. Elizabeth is alive, and she's here in my arms. Then he said, It is just the most wonderful, wonderful thing, as absolutely horrible as it was to have her taken. It is just absolutely wonderful to have her home again. When the interview was over, I imagined God was talking about us. I imagine his excitement about us being rescued and reunited with him forever. I had tears in my eyes imagining Jesus calling the Father, saying, You are not going to believe this, sobbing. Elizabeth is alive and she's here in my arms. This last chapter relates the final reunion of God and his children and the complete restoration and recreation of the earth. Yes, it is true. In a little while, we are going home. The Restorer As we mentioned in the first chapter, the whole Bible is an inclusio, which is a narrative sandwich in which the story begins and ends in the same way. In these last three chapters of Revelation, we see the same words and topics that we found in the first three chapters of the Bible just in reversed order. The book of Genesis starts with creation, chapter 1, 
intimacy with God, chapter 2, and then the tempter, sin, evil, and death, chapter 3. Now the last three chapters of Revelation announce the reversal of those same things. Satan is destroyed and evil is no more, chapter 20. God once again tabernacles with his children in intimacy forever, with no mourning, crying, pain, nor death. The first things have passed away, chapter 21, Revelation 21, 4. And the final chapter describes the recreated earth, chapter 22. Excitingly, most of the book of Revelation announces the moment when the Lamb comes back to take us to be with Him. Can you imagine waiting for a long, long time to see your children again? Ed Smart waited nine months to see his little girl again. God has been waiting a lot longer. Can you imagine that moment? Ed couldn't contain his tears as he related the moment in which he had called his wife. You're not going to believe this. Elizabeth is alive and she's here in my arms. Jesus came to this world the first time in order to pay our ransom. His birth and death are narrated in the Gospels. The cross was the moment when we were set free. His perfect life, death, and resurrection assured eternal life for all who accept His payment on our behalf. Let's take a moment to understand more fully the concept of the Goel that we introduced in the previous chapter. The Goel is one of the most intriguing themes running through Scripture, commonly referred to as the Kingsman Redeemer. When someone was in distress and in need of being rescued, the person's closest relative could legally step in. If a man could no longer support himself, he could give up his property or inheritance, and if that wasn't enough, he could turn himself into a slave to pay his debt. What a terrible situation. But wait, there was a light at the end of the tunnel. The nearest kinsman, the closest relative, could act on behalf of the relative. He could purchase the property or land and restore it to its original owner or pay the ransom for the enslaved relative to set him free. The closest of kin claimed responsibility for the relative in distress. Can you imagine being so destitute and so lost, and then you hear the news about your kinsman redeemer on his way to rescue you? Woohoo! The word in Hebrew for the kinsman redeemer is goel. Aside from marrying a widow and securing descendants for a deceased close relative, the goel had many other roles regarding destitute relatives. Leviticus 25 is one of the chapters that explains in detail some of the laws of redemption. These are some examples of the important roles of the Goel. One, to redeem a relative who had sold himself into slavery. Leviticus 25, 47 to 54. Two, to redeem property that was given up by a poor relative. Verses 25 to 34. Three, to avenge the blood of a murdered relative, Goel Hadam, Numbers 35, 19-27. 4. To appear in a lawsuit as a helper for a relative to make sure that justice was done, Proverbs 23, 11, Jeremiah 50, 34, Psalm 
119-154. Can you imagine a person who was destitute, without property, in slavery, or trapped in a lawsuit? Can you imagine the helplessness and the hopelessness the person experienced? But can you visualize the happiness and relief the same person started to feel when seeing their goel? Jesus is the one. And this is where it gets really good. This explains the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. When God created us in his image, he pledged himself to a rescue plan because he was our closest of kin. He is our goel. He obligated himself to become our rescuer. From the very beginning, the concepts of creation and redemption are linked together. God is our Father and Redeemer. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer, Goel. From of old is your name, Isaiah 63:16. As we discussed before, Goel is used in the scriptures as a descriptive name for God, usually translated as Redeemer in our English Bibles. It highlights his mighty acts of redemption on behalf of his people, Exodus 6, 6, 15, 13. Especially in the book of Isaiah, God constantly reminds us that he is our kinsman redeemer, our Goel. I am particularly touched when he reminds us to fear not because he has done his job as our Goel. But now... Thus says the Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed, goeled, you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Isaiah 43, 1. Jesus would be the one to become flesh, become our brother, and redeem us without money. Isaiah 52, 3. This is why the Lamb that was slain, is the only one worthy to open the history of the world's redemption, Revelation 5, 5-10. He redeemed us with his blood. He came to die. That was the purpose, to pay the ransom because he is our goel. Jesus himself stated that this was the purpose of his death. In his explanation, we find a word usually associated with the goel and the payment that was offered for the enslaved relative. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Mark 10.45, emphasis added. Jesus redeemed us, and he redeemed our land. That's why the new earth will be right here. We'll be back to where we started in Genesis 1. See Revelation 22. Jesus fulfills all the roles of the goel. Praise God for our kinsman redeemer. If your children were kidnapped, wouldn't you do the same? Pay the ransom or whatever it takes? The whole Bible is a story of how God got his children back. You see, when humankind chose to follow the kidnapper, they became sinful and mortal. Romans 5, 12 to 21. They were handicapped. They could not save themselves. They were dying because the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 The deceitful serpent 
could never have imagined that God would love us this much. The deceiver thought that he had outsmarted God. He never expected love to win. Perhaps humans themselves thought that they were beyond redemption. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, Romans 5.20. We are all amazed by God's love. Our goel stepped in and we are going home. No wonder the book of Revelation contains so many flamboyant worship scenes. Welcome home. After a period of time specified as the thousand years, the kidnapper, the serpent, the devil who deceived them is destroyed forever. Revelation 20.10 Then the earth is recreated and becomes the new earth. Revelation 21 It is very significant that our permanent home will be the same place where we were in the beginning because this was one of the roles of the Kingsman Redeemer. Remember how he had to redeem property that was given up by a poor relative? If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman, Goel, is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. Leviticus 25.25 Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, paid the ransom not only to rescue us, but also to get our land, the earth, back. Oh, this is just so exciting and wonderful. Beyond words, the Bible comes full circle through the blood of the Lamb. As we open the book of Revelation, we immediately get into the language that was used at the beginning of the Jewish scriptures. For example, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 2.7 emphasis added. Tree of life and paradise are words we encountered in Genesis 2, when God prepared a special place for his beloved children. The tree of life is also present in Genesis 3, with the sad reminder that humans would no longer have access to it because they were now mortals. But as we get to the place where the cosmic view of Jesus' ministry is unveiled, we start hearing the same type of language once again. When we start reading Revelation 21, John announces that he saw a new heaven and a new earth, and there is no longer any sea. Verse 1. For the first century Mediterranean world, the sea was the place where evil resided. Evil is no more, and a loud voice from the throne is heard. This voice announces the fulfillment of the ongoing covenant theme that was spoken at different times and in different ways all through the Bible, always pointing to God dwelling with his people, verse 3 and 4. The presence of God with his people has been the theme throughout the history of humankind. They were created to be with him. We are reminded of this throughout the Old Testament. I will make my dwelling among you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. Leviticus 26, 11 and 12. This covenantal phrase constantly reminds us that God is with us and will be with us forever. Oh, dear Jesus, 
how much I need to be reminded of this reality every day. Moreover, God designed a way in which His people would experience His presence, the tabernacle in the wilderness and eventually the temple. God manifested the glory of His presence, as well as His redemption plan, in these sacred structures. When Jesus became flesh, He tabernacled. It is the same word as tabernacle, only in a verb form, usually translated as dwelt. Among us, and once again, we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 14. Jesus was the ultimate representation of God's glory. See Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. In the new earth, the tabernacle of God is among men because he's dwelling with them forevermore. There is no more temple because God himself is among them. I saw no temple in it for the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Revelation 21, 22. God is finally back with his children, whom he lost in paradise. In the Jewish scriptures, the covenant of God was given to Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. These men of all received signs of the covenant and had glimpses of its developmental nature. When we get to the new earth, the covenant will be fulfilled, and the ultimate reality for us will be that we will have received the divine sonship. We are, in fact, children of God. God will be with us and we will be with God, reunited forever. The accomplishment of this final reality will be announced by God himself. See verse 7. Yes, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. 1 John 3, 1. Let no one convince you otherwise. Would you like some fruit? The last book of the Bible ends with a scene of the redeemed humanity returned to the tree of life. We have come full circle. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of his street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Revelation 22, 1 and 2. The tree that God planted in paradise in the beginning is back. Remember how Jesus promised paradise to the criminal on the cross? See Luke 23:43. Well, here we are, standing by the tree of life. Its fruit is described in vivid and luscious words. John utters the seventh and last beatitude in this book. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city, Revelation twenty-two fourteen, emphasis added. The expression of washing their robes has already been explained in Revelation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, Revelation seven fourteen. Those who are now the blessed ones have the right to the tree of life, 
a symbol of immortality because they have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They accepted the ransom paid by their goel. This is the only reason they have the right to go back to the tree of life, which humans lost when they followed the kidnapper. Clearly, one tree is on both sides of the river. This is an allusion to the Garden of Eden, with the tree of life on the bank of the river flowing from the garden, Genesis 2.9. To eat from the tree of life in Eden meant to live forever, Genesis 3.22. It was after Adam and Eve were banished from the garden that they were forbidden to approach the tree of life and eat from it, Genesis 3.23-24. The tree of life in the New Jerusalem symbolizes eternal life free of death and suffering. On the new earth, the restored Garden of Eden, the tree of life is no longer forbidden. It is located in the midst of the new Jerusalem, and all the redeemed have access to it. Once again, human beings will share in the gift of eternal life that Adam enjoyed before sin entered the world. All that was lost through Adam is now regained through Christ. Cited from Ranko Stefanovic, Revelation of Jesus Christ. Yes, definitely, it is starting to smell and feel like home. The Lamb is everything. I hope you take a moment to read the last two chapters of Revelation. I want to analyze further two very interesting portraits of Jesus in these last chapters of the Bible. Let's read once again Revelation 21, verses 22 and 23. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. I have always been intrigued by these statements. The Lamb is the temple, and the Lamb is the light. The fact that Jesus is the light of the world has been developed by many authors, especially by John in his gospel, starting from the very beginning, John 1, 1 to 5. The word was God and was the active agent of creation. He himself was life, see verse 4. He didn't just give life, but he was life. And following the order of creation, Genesis 1, 3 to 5, John talks about light. He says that the word was life, and the life became the light of men, John 1, 4. And just as in the process of creation, when the light appeared, darkness was exposed, verse 5. See also John 3, 18 to 21. John goes on to say that Jesus was the true light, which enlightens every man, John 1, 9. Every person has the chance to accept or reject the light. Then we learn that when the light came home, those at home did not receive him. What a tragedy! Home is supposed to be your own place where everybody knows your name. The Word, the life giver, and light bearer was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, verses 10 and 11. This is the bad news. But there's also good news. Some did accept the light. 
and he gave a gift to those who received him by believing in him, a new status, children of God, divine sonship, Revelation 21, 7. In one of his I am statements found in the gospel, Jesus boldly claims, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8, 12. See also John 9, 5. In Revelation, John reveals that the Lamb is the lamp in the New Jerusalem. Revelation 21, verses 22 and 23. Jesus illumines us from Genesis to eternity. John, in his gospel, also develops the theme that Jesus is the tabernacle of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14 The words used in this verse are of the utmost importance. First, John's choice of the word flesh is designed to highlight the fact that the Word did not make just a spiritual appearance, but had a real physical body. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Second, the word dwelt means that he encamped, or in the Old Testament vernacular, tabernacled among us. This is a key word because it is derived from the root word tabernacle, the sanctuary in the wilderness, the place where God's presence resided with his people. John wants his readers to catch the connection and to understand that the term refers back to the tabernacle that Moses built in the wilderness. Right afterwards, he uses another word, glory, that also comes from the tabernacle vocabulary. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, Exodus 40, 34. Now the tabernacle is the flesh, and we see God's glory through Jesus Christ. He's the fullest revelation of the glory of God. Furthermore, His utmost glory is the cross, where God is revealed most fully. When humanity sinned, God found a way to continue His relationship with us, and He developed the idea of the tabernacle, sanctuary, or temple, so that through the services and sacrifices performed there, He could demonstrate His plan for us and we could understand Jesus' work of redemption on our behalf. When Jesus came to earth, he tabernacled among us, and we saw more clearly the glory of God, John 1:14. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he left the members of his church as temples through which his glory may be revealed. Now in the new Jerusalem, the Lamb is the temple forever, and God tabernacles with us for eternity. See Revelation 21, verses 3 and 22. He is truly Emmanuel, God with us. He wants to be close to us forever. Ending at the beginning. At the end of the book of Revelation, we get the final multi-descriptive portrait of Christ, which repeats some of the descriptions of Jesus that we found at the beginning of the book. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Revelation 22, verses 13 and 16. Yes, Jesus was there at the beginning, 
and he is the end of our story on earth. He is our all in all. The last red letters, the direct words of Jesus, when the risen Christ speaks for the last time in the Bible, are recorded in Revelation 22:20. Yes, I am coming quickly. Do you hear the eagerness of a parent coming back for his children? John's answer is also representative of the longing response of all of us to see our Redeemer and be with God forever. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Verse 20. Yes, let's add our eager voices together. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come soon. I started this chapter describing the signs in Salt Lake City. Elizabeth, welcome home. I can already imagine signs everywhere as we are getting closer to heaven saying, Dear children, welcome home. I can almost hear Jesus' voice. They are alive and they are here in my arms. This is a real history of humankind from beginning to eternity. The lamb is triumphant and the villain has lost. It is a full circle from creation to redemption, only possible because a costly ransom was paid by the Lamb. This is the story of the successful rescue of God's kidnapped children. We know the end of the story. Revelation can be summarized in two words. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. No need to be anxious. No need to be fearful. Just remember how it ends. And God and his children lived happily ever after. The end. Which, thanks to the Lamb, is just the beginning. For more information and resources, go to our website, www.jesus1.tv.